your Bibles this morning with me to Matthew chapter 22. I'm, I'm going to be using quite a bit of verses and Scripture in your Bible this morning, but Matthew chapter 22 within God's Word this morning. Matthew 22, verse 29 will be my main text this morning that we'll keep coming back to. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, if you would, and verse 29 in just a moment. Praise the Lord. And if you didn't receive a sermon study guide, raise your hand and the ushers will get one to you. Many times the choir gets missed. And if you need a sermon study guide to follow along, uh, if you enjoy filling in the blanks, raise your hand. If you don't enjoy filling in the blanks, then just keep your hand down and we won't worry about it. Hey, uh, I just want to be a little transparent and open with you this morning and uh, because I'm not, I'm not an automotive worker. I, I, I'm not a healthcare worker. I'm not uh, involved in uh, secular education. Uh, I'm a pastor. It's the only work that I know. And, uh, you know, when it comes to describing uh, pastoral ministry, I can just frankly tell you there's some really, really awesome days in being a pastor. There's some great days uh, in being involved in ministry. But uh, then there's some, some bad days as well. Uh, there's, some, there's some days, there's some difficult days. Uh, uh, for instance, like my first Sunday at Lakeside, the Sunday, and, and usually in our system, on our system, uh, when, when you're choosing a new pastor, you bring him in to preach, and then you vote on him. <laughs> And you never knew, you, you all never knew that when you voted on this guy, you'd be stuck with him for, you know, 25 plus plus years. And, and uh, my, my first Sunday here at Lakeside, uh, I, I, the first Sunday morning, I, I, I preached my heart out, and then I had an altar call for those that, that needed healing, needed uh, um, the ministry of prayer. And one of the, the first uh, people that I laid my hands on what uh, was this gentleman? I, I laid hands on him and prayed over him, and he fell down. And I thought, okay, uh, he must be really getting blessed. And, and he fell down when I laid hands on him, and his wife just stood there behind him, unmoving, and didn't act like it was anything out of the ordinary. And I'm praying over the next, but I kept watching him out of my peripheral vision. And I'm just a kid at that point, and. All of a sudden, I notice as I'm praying over other people that he's turning blue and he's not moving. And that's right. On my first Sunday morning, we had to call an ambulance. The gurney came down the aisleway, and that was the morning, the day they had a vote on your pastor. And when I went and visited that man in the hospital, he says, don't touch me. No, no, he didn't. No, I, I made that part up. How they ever voted me in, I still can't figure that out. My, my, my. <laughs> There's some discouraging days in pastoral ministry. A lot of our discouraging moments have taken place around dramas. You know, like Edge of Eternity. Like the time we had Edge of Eternity outdoors. And we thought it'd be really cool, you know. We, 
uh, to have live things take place out there. We had a limo that brought in the Antichrist. How many of you remember that? You were around then in 1990. The Antichrist was Pastor Hal. I mean, he, he loved that role. I mean, <laughs> uh, then we thought it'd be cool that Jesus would come in on, on a white horse. So we borrowed a white horse. His, and his name is, was Rebel. And that should include us right there. And we had him in a pen out here uh, uh, in our south parking lot uh, by the woods there. We had him in a pen. And, and, and uh, one day while we were keeping him out there, the police showed up and said, Is that your horse that's down at Shaner and, and Hall Road in the middle of the intersection blocking cars all over? Or the time we had Edge of Eternity and we, and we wanted to make hell so very real to the audience. Well, hell caught on fire. I mean, we really had hell up here. I mean, and they came running down from the balcony with a fire extinguisher. It was my greatest altar call ever. No, no. Probably, uh, and again, dramas. I, I, we, ought, we should have put a video together of video bloopers from our drama. It would be the hottest seller here at Lakeside. Uh, I'll never forget where, I think it was an Easter drama that I was doing, and it, it was so powerful, so touching. We had three crosses up here. We had the two thieves uh, on their crosses, and then we had uh, a character that played the role of Christ on the cross. And, and all of a sudden, the middle of this moving, uh, illustrated sermon that I was doing, the arm on the cross broke. And Christ's arm is swinging free. And, you know, that's bad enough as the whole congregation just <gasps> inhales out there. But the Christ character started laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> then jumped down off the cross, which theologically just blows your whole mess. Then the two thieves, they started laughing too, right in the middle of my message. And they jumped off their crosses. Then you wonder why your pastor sometimes goes home just, and his wife has to just pray him through. Discouraging days, but it's a real bad day in pastoring. When you can't pay the church expenses or people are criticizing your leadership or your preaching or they're even leaving your church. I've been there. And I just share that to say, hey, I know what discouragement is all about. Uh, it's not just ministers that face the devil's attack of discouragement. It's the young. It's the old. It's moms and dads. It's young people, students, singles. Discouragement will find you at home. It'll chase you down at work. Discouragement, attack, will meet you at school in the morning. It'll meet you on Facebook when people talk about you. Discouragement will even greet you sometimes at church. Believe me. 
That's why God's given me a word this morning for you. A word that He's laid upon my heart to share with you, my dear Lakeside family, this morning. A word simply entitled, God Confidence. God Confidence. Would you pray with me right now? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray, permeate our very spirits. Lord, not with the world's confidence, with your confidence, God confidence. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Mark it down with me this morning. One of the enemy's most favorite tools, one of his most favorite weapons to paralyze the faith of Christians today is discouragement. Discouragement. Discouragement is the antithesis of confidence. Living without confidence will assassinate every opportunity in your life. If you lack confidence, it'll mean the difference between winning and losing, victory and defeat, poor, being impoverished and, and being blessed. It'll mean the difference between blessing and curse. Living without confidence will impact your work. It'll impact your school life. It'll impact your grades. It'll impact your relationships. It'll impact the most vital relationships of all, like home, family, marriage. Speaking of marriage, it reminds me of two lines, two lines, two lines that were in heaven. Maybe you've heard of those two lines that God asked for in heaven. Uh, when the all the men were put aside in heaven and ordered to stand in two lines. One line was reserved uh, for men that were henpecked. And then the other line was reserved for men that were the true spiritual leaders of their families. The henpecked line was so huge that it became dim in the distance. Every man there stood in the henpecked line except for one man who stood in the spiritual leadership line. The angel of the Lord was amazed. This is incredible. And he came up to the man uh, that was standing alone in that, that line of spiritual headship, spiritual leadership, the priest of his family. And he said, Sir, sir, I want to report to all of heaven. How is it that only you are standing in this line? And he looked up and said, My wife told me to stand here. Confidence. Confidence. Confidence means the difference at, at school, at work, at home. It's vital to all of our relationships, and it's vital to the most greatest relationship that we have in life, our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm talking about confidence. It was said that the devil had a garage sale. And as someone looked at the devil's garage sale and the tools that he was selling, there was a wedge-shaped tool that was the most worn, the most used tool of all. And when asked what tool that was, the devil quickly remarked and said, This tool that I've used the most, this tool which I have found to be the most effective, this tool... My most powerful tool is discouragement. Discouragement. Through discouragement, the enemy of your soul and my soul will get you to doubt your relationship with the Lord. Through discouragement, 
The enemy will keep you from praying through discouragement. He'll make you feel like a nobody instead of God's will for your life to be a somebody. Through discouragement. Hear me in this. You'll no longer be a blessing to others. And most undoubtedly, you'll curse yourself and condemn yourself. Discouragement. It demoralizes, it immobilizes, it paralyzes the faith of the follower of Jesus Christ. I mentioned how the enemy attacks pastors and ministers with discouragement, but how has he been attacking you lately with discouragement? Are you dealing with discouragement over financial setbacks? The old slew foot, the devil, whispering into your soul, you won't make ends meet. You won't be able to pay your bills or save for retirement. Is, is it over your health? You'll never enjoy health again, strength again. You're going to die. Or maybe it's your job, your, your, your career. You're a loser. You're a failure. You're a nobody. Or is it your love relationships? You'll never be loved. You'll never love again. You're going to be alone your entire life. Or is it in respect to your family, your marriage? Has He whispered in your ear, give up on believing for a good marriage. Give up on believing for your children to be born again. You see, the enemy's goal is to so immobilize your joy and so magnify your problems that you'll never be able to see God in the midst of your storm. All you see is the storm. He might not be able to get you to turn your back on God, but He can so paralyze you that you're no longer effective for the kingdom of God because He's paralyzed your faith. He's immobilized your prayer life. He's canceled you out as a soldier of the cross. I mean, think of how the enemy has used his darts of discouragement throughout God's Word. Abraham and Sarah were so discouraged because they could not have children. And finally, in their later years of life, their senior years, where they used the senior discount card at your local restaurant, like Pastor does, he loves getting his McDonald's coffee. That even in that stage and season of life, Abraham was so discouraged. Sarah was so discouraged. What did they fall prey to? Sarah said, here's my servant girl. Why don't you have a baby through her? Let's fulfill God's promises through her. And Abraham, being a good husband, said, sounds like God's will to me. The enemy desires and designs to get you so discouraged that you fall prey to using worldly methodology to achieve spiritual victories. And I'm telling you, it does not work in God's economy that way. Through discouragement, God got, or not God, the enemy got Elijah and Moses, both these great heroes of the faith, the enemy got Elijah and Moses so discouraged. Read it in the Bible. Both Moses and Elijah, their prayer was, God, kill me. You can read it right there in the Word. They wanted to die. 
King David's, King David's, King David's men at one point became so discouraged that they shifted the blame of their dis That's what discouragement will do. It will cause you to be a blame uh, shifter, to play the blame game. They became so discouraged, the soldiers of David, that they sought to kill David. But the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. Yes. I could go on and on and on throughout God's Word and how men and women of faith have become so discouraged. The children of Israel, two and a half million people, were on the threshold of God's best. They were on the threshold, uh, the open door of the promised land, but they became discouraged and said there's giants in the land. And discouragement kept the people of God from God's best. Listen, in all those instances, think of it. If discouragement had ultimately won the day, you and I would not be sitting here this morning. If there hadn't been an, uh, uh, an Isaac, uh, if there hadn't been an Elijah, a Moses, if there hadn't been a King David, if the Israelites had not ultimately possessed the promised land, you and I would not be worshiping Jesus Christ here this morning. That's right. That's right. That means discouragement can be turned around. But there's more. The devil delights in using discouragement to deceive us into faulty thinking. Some of us, some of us operate again by the world's paradigm, the world's model, the world's thinking, and we begin to analyze our situation. If I can change my circumstances, I can be happy. If I can just change the, the financial, the health, the marital, the family, if I can just change my circumstances, then I will enjoy victory. Wrong! God wants to change your character before He changes your circumstances. Yes! Yes! That's wrong thinking. That's the problem with discouragement. It deceives us. It lulls us into unbiblical, groundless thinking. We began to fall prey to using the same methods that the world uses to banish discouragement. I pray this is not you. I've counseled some that to get out of their discouragement, they max out their credit cards. I've ministered to some who, hey, somebody has stolen their joy. They're discouraged. So they say, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. That's the world's tactics, right? Some singles get so discouraged over finding a mate, they get ahead of God like Abraham and Sarah. They get ahead of God. And so they try the world's methodology. And they, 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 they check out the single bar scene to try to find a mate. And, and then they bring them to church. And then they wonder why we're in endless, endless counseling trying to work out deep-seated problems. Some escape into a food binge. Some escape into TV and deny reality. Some escape uh, into the bottles, prescription pills, drugs. Some just sit back and, and, and stay in a seat of discouragement and become the devil's punching bag. Hey, that's not God's will for you. That's not 
God's plan for your life to be the devil's punching bag. God's plan is for you to walk with faith, to walk with confidence, to square your shoulders, to lift up your head and declare, He's my glory and the lifter of my head. God's plan is for the devil to be in the corner, calling 911, having a Malox moment. Do you hear me in this? You're not to be the devil's punching bag. Or here's a slick one. Through discouragement, the enemy of your soul and my soul can get you to so rely on self-improvement philosophies. And listen, the world is loaded with self-improvement philosophies. Books, tapes, videos. Oh, at the Pistons Palace, at least once a year, they have a whole lineup of famous speakers that will get you to think positively on the surface. Working harder, working smarter, getting more education, uh, investing more wisely. On the surface, the philosophy of self-improvement sounds so good. And God wants you to improve self. But through Him, through Him, through Him, through Him, hear me in this. Write it down. The confidence that God calls us to is not the glorification of self. It's not self-confidence. It's God-confidence. There is a major difference between self-confidence and God-confidence. If self-confidence was all that I needed, I wouldn't need a Savior. I wouldn't need a Christ upon a cross. I would not need the shed blood of the Lamb, Christ Jesus. God-confidence is total reliance and dependency upon the Almighty. You see, God-confidence is not found through pumping iron. Some, that's how some get their confidence, through a healthy, uh, strong, steroid uh, body. Uh, Self-confidence, uh, real confidence, God-confidence uh, is not found be, be, by becoming some intellectual giant that has more answers than Google. Real confidence, God-confidence, is neither a psych psychological matter. Some wake up every morning and look in the mirror and, and say, You're the man. You're the man. You're the man. <laughs> You're the man. And they psych themselves up before going to work or going to school. God-confidence is not a physical, intellectual, or an emotional matter. God-confidence is the spiritual relationship. It's the consequence of a spiritual relationship with an almighty God who will not and who cannot fail you or I. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's nothing that you can pump up. It's nothing that you can derive from the world. It's not worldly. It comes from above. God-confidence. God-confidence. Jeremiah spoke of this confidence. Jeremiah's chapter 17, verse 7, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. Do you see that there? The word confidence literally comes from two words. You might want to write this down.
The word confidence literally comes from two words. With and faith. With and faith. The word in essence means living with faith. Listen this morning. We must not move in fear. God's calling us to move in a faith. A faith not in self, but a faith in a God who will not and cannot fail us. Self-confidence is self-deception. It's false perception. God-confidence is the keen awareness that we're a people under divine authority. We're under divine orders from our commander-in-chief. We are children of the Most High God in whom God is well-pleased. God-confidence is rooted not in who you are, but whose you are in Christ Jesus. Write it down. Yet today, countless Christians, countless Christians are whiners instead of winners. Why? Because they misperceive how to live and how to move in God confidence. Where do you get God confidence? How do you achieve it? How is it released in your person? How does it work through your person? How do you live and move in God confidence? Hmm? Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, our main text this morning that I want you, boy, if you can memorize it, it'd be powerful. You see, Jesus here in Matthew 22 is dealing with faulty philosophies, faulty perceptions of the religious leadership, the church of his day. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 22, 29. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Do you see that there? Uh, let's do a little Greek study here this morning. Let's do a little what we call exegesis here this morning. Let's take apart this verse that is so powerful in your New Testament. The word for uh, error is very important. The original word that is translated error from the Greek really means deceived. Deceived. At its strongest meaning, Jesus is saying, you are deceived. You don't know the Scriptures, or the power of God. You're living under a faulty perception. You are living in deception. I want you to also understand the word know. This is very unique. In Matthew 22, verse 9, Jesus says, you are deceived because you do not know the Scriptures, God's Word, and you do not know the power of God. The word here, know, it's the only place in the entire Bible that we find this Greek word show up. Usually in, in the New Testament Greek language, the word for knowledge or know is from the Greek word gnosko. gnosko. Uh, many, uh, I don't have time, that's a bunny trail, I'm not going to even go there. <laughs> but uh, you'll see that uh, Gnosis, gnoso, is a word for knowledge and even secret knowledge, especially during the first and second uh, century. Gnosticism, maybe you're acquainted with that term. Jesus doesn't use that. Normally he would have used gnosko. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus uses iodetes. Iodetes. No here is iodetes. 
that literally means you do not have the slightest hint. You do not have even a mere awareness. You don't even have the slightest little experience with the Word of God or the power of God. He didn't say you just don't know it. He says you don't even have a mere awareness of God's Word or God's power. And I would say to you, that's where much of the church is at today. Sad to say. A, not even a mere awareness of God's Word and God's power. If you're asking me, Pastor, how can I live with God confidence? How can I enjoy victory? How can I enjoy discouragement, banishing victory and joy in my life? How can I move in God confidence towards every mountain, towards every stronghold, towards every vicissitude in life? How can I enjoy that? You must know the Scriptures and you must know the power of God. Jesus here is giving us a prescription for God confidence. Please be aware of that. Amen. Mark it down. Believers who move in God confidence when they make God's Word their Word, especially for life's discouragements. What Word permeates your life? What word permeates your life? Do you, do you realize that when your kids go to, to, to school, public school, and even, even some of the so-called Christian schools, you know what kind of word that they're hearing on a daily basis, a daily dose? The cussing, the swearing, the profanity, the obscenity that's streaming into their spirit. What word do you go by? If your daily diet is R-rated movies, I ask you, what word are you allowing into your life, into your mind? What word, if you're a complainer, if you're a whiner instead of a winner, what word are you allowing to inhabit your tongue, which has become a toxic tongue? Matthew 22, verse 29, I remind you again, Jesus said you are an heir because you do not know the Scriptures. Do you know God's Word? Do you know the Scriptures? Do you read them, study them? Do you feast on God's Word? We have to stop viewing the Bible as just another nice book. I want to remind you that this is the divinely inspired. This is the inerrant. This is the infallible. This is the immutable. This is the indestructible Word of God. There is no Word like this Word. Let this Word permeate your mind. Let it shape uh, your soul. Let your, uh, your life be a life that digests and feasts upon this Word. Let this Word rule your life. You will not go wrong. This Word, as it permeates the very spirit of your life, will impact you in such a powerful way that it will change your eternal destiny. This Word has been the bestseller for now centuries of time. Eat the whole loaf and not just a slice. And watch what God will do in and through His Word. But it's not enough just to believe this Word. It's not enough just to receive this Word. You and I have to release this Word. Write it down. We must release God's Word. Words have power. 
power in the spiritual dimension. If you, a keen theology of the Bible is to understand that God transacts kingdom business through words. Through words. The opening page of your Bible shows how God created all that there is out of the unseen things to become visible reality through the spoken word. Through the spoken word. Time and time again, Jesus would transact miracles. Jesus would deal with the demonic through a spoken word. It's not enough to believe God's Word. It's not enough to receive God's Word. We are called to release God's Word by speaking His Word. His Word. Yes, the Bible says in Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. What are you confessing? What are you releasing? Life or death. The enemy's words are depressing discouraging, faith-destroying, death-dealing words. God's words are always restorative. God's words are always life-giving. His word is always joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's why Paul could write in Ephesians 6.17, Paul wrote, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now this is interesting again in the Greek. W-O-R-D spells what? W-O-R-D here in Ephesians 6.17 usually throughout the New Testament comes from the Greek word logos. Logos, the printed word, the written word. This is not logos here. Here we find the Greek word what? We find the Greek word rhema. The Greek word rhema. Yes. The spoken word, a confessed word, a released word. Paul is saying that when the Holy Spirit goes to battle, he uses the spoken word of the Lord, and so are you. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Thou shalt worship him and worship him only. Jesus confessed the word. Jesus released the word. Jesus used the word as a weapon. Again, it's not enough to believe. we got a lot of believers in God's word here. We have a lot of those that have received God's Word into their lives, and they use it for daily nourishment. But what I am calling you to step it up in, what I'm calling you up to higher ground in, is learn not just to believe and to receive, but to release it. To release it. If you want to walk with God confidence, because this week you're going to be dealing with some problems. You're going to be dealing with some discouragements, because we're in the real world. Amen? And this real world is not a playground. It's a battleground. Lift up the sword of the Spirit. Confess His Word. Release His Word. And watch the difference that it brings in your life. Of course, you need to know God's Word. Study it. Memorize it. Find out what are the promises of God's Word that you need to use in battle. Put your spiritual weaponry together. Amen. Every day in prayer, Utilize God's Word. Pray the promises of God in prayer. Watch your prayer life be revolutionized as you pray the promises of God. You know, I've written a never again list. Do you have a never again list? I've written myself a never again list. Never again. 
will I confess poverty. For my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. Never again will I confess fear. For the apostle Paul wrote, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. Never again will I confess self-condemnation. You'll find in the book of Romans it says, uh, uh, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Never again will I confess I can't. Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Never again, never again, never again, never again will I confess the devil's victory. I'm going to confess God's victory. For the Bible says, for greater is he that's within me than he that's within this world. Never again. Never again, never again, move in God confidence. Speak His Word. Confess His Word. Let His Word be upon your lips. This is not some super spiritual, Jesus freak, holy Joe fanaticism. This is practical stuff I'm giving you this morning. Learn to live with God confidence. Anybody can sit in the corner and be the devil's punching bag. Come out swinging. Speak God's Word. Hallelujah! 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 Try it! You'll like it! Amen! But there's more. God confidence comes in realizing that God also has a word for you. God has a word for you. I just taught you how to use God's word as a weapon. But God's word is also a healing word. God's word is also illuminating. God wants to give you a word. His word is more exposing, more illuminating, more healing than any powerful x-ray, MRI, CAT scan. I'm talking about His word. The psalmist said in Psalms 119, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. When he speaks his rhema word, a rhema word is an anointed word. It, it's a word that comes at the right moment, at the right time, just when you're in need. God will give you a word. It's a rhema word. An anointed and appointed word that you know that you know that you know when you read it or when you hear it. That's for me. God's speaking to me. God's got my number. He knows just right where I'm at. He's speaking to me. This last weekend, I had a fly-in and fly-out of a board meeting down in Florida at Southeastern University where I attended school back in the Stone Age. I can't believe it. 35 years ago. My, my, my. How time flies when you're having fun. And I pointed out to my daughter, who's a student there, I said, you see that dorm room? That dorm room right there, the second one from the end, that was where I stayed my first year as a freshman. They jammed three guys into a 10 by 10 dorm room. No shower, no toilet, no air conditioning. We had to put on bathrobes, walk outside, and go to the bathhouse 
and take showers or, 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 or to use the bathroom in there. And let me tell you, Lakeland, Florida, Central Florida, in January, where uh, there's high humidity, it gets down in the 30s, and it is cold. And because of that, they called that dorm, which was the shabbiest, the cheapest, the most despicable dorm on campus. They called it leper colony. Us guys from Leper Colony, we wore our dorm with pride upon us. Because uh, what we liked about it, nobody wanted to be there. And so we were kind of separated from the rest of the campus to do our own thing. <laughs> and oh yeah, I did some pranks. But when I look in, at that dorm, that was also a place I met with God and God met with me. One night, one night, I remember it was during missions week and the power of God had come down in that place. God had spoken to heart after heart after heart in missions week who responded to world missions. This was not in faith promises. This was lives that were being laid upon the altar young men and women that were coming up and saying, here am I, send me, I want to be a missionary. And I so wanted to be a missionary. I grew up as a pastor's son. I literally saw men double up their fists and threaten to punch my dad's lights out. I saw all the angst that can come anytime you bring people together. And I wanted nothing to do with it. Nothing. I wanted to be a missionary. And I wanted to share Jesus with people that really wanted God. And I went back to my dorm room and, 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 and I still was wrestling over this. I needed to hear from God and I went back to my dorm room and I said, God, I need a word from you. I need to hear from you. God, I need guidance. I need direction. I want to be a missionary. No skywriting in the sky, no audible voice. So I felt led to begin reading in my Bible where I had left off in my Bible devotions. I'm not one of those just to open up my Bible and put my finger down and it says Judas hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. I mean, I'm not one of those people. No, my next point in reading in my devotions was Ezekiel chapter 3. And listen to what Ezekiel 3 says. You've got to remember, I'm asking God to give me a word. I am not sending you to some far-off foreign land where you can't understand the language. If I did, they would listen. I am sending you to your own people, for the whole lot of them are hard, impotent, and stubborn. But see, I have made you hard and stubborn too. My wife will say amen to that. As tough as they are, don't be afraid of them. Go to your people and tell them, this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. My point this morning, I want you to realize, Christian, if you want to walk in God's confidence, you need to know that you know that you know God wants to speak to you. God will speak to you through His Spirit, through His Word. 
God will speak to you through preaching, through a friend, somehow, some way. But God knows right where you're at. He's got your number. And He'll speak a word into your life. But God's confidence is more than life in the Word. It's life in the Spirit. It's life in the Spirit. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the power of God. The power of God. I can point you to church after church after church after church after church after church after church that teaches the Word. They preach the Word. They have classes for the Word. They have ministries based upon the Word. They are a Word-based church, but they know nothing of the Spirit. They know nothing of the Spirit. And that's what I'm addressing right now. I want to ask you this morning, do you know the power of God? Do you really know the power of God? Be careful how you answer. Do you know the power of God? Have you experienced the power of God in your life? I used to think I knew about electricity. I got straight A's in physics in school. I love science. I studied about electricity. I mean, I devoured everything. I built things in, in science lab based on electricity. But it wasn't until I was a fix-it man for the apartment complex in Pasadena, California, where I went to seminary, it wasn't until I installed an electric heater in a bathroom and I came in contact with the power of electricity that threw me from one end of the room all the way to the other end of the room. And as I shook there for the first time, I understood. I knew about the power of electricity. My point here this morning, I love education. I love learning. I don't believe that Pentecostals should have to check in their brains at the front door of the church when they worship in one of my services, in a lakeside service or a lakeside setting. I don't believe that, that we should be devoid of intellectual awareness of the Scriptures. But listen, if all you have is an intellectual knowledge of God, you just know about God. You just know about His Word. I want you to know your mere awareness will mean, hear me in this, that you will become an intellectual Christian. You will become one who subscribes to a barren orthodoxy. Those kind of churches, we call them dead churches. Dead churches. When you have excluded yourself from the Spirit of God, do you know the power of God? Have you experienced the power of God? You'll experience, write it down, you'll experience the power of God by pressing into His presence in prayer and praise. This is what we find in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas were at their midnight hour. Paul and Silas were in a dungeon. Paul and Silas, these two men of God, had been wrongly accused. They had been beaten with wooden sticks. They had been chained in the darkness, the filth of that dungeon. There was no hope of escape, no hope of freedom. But at the midnight hour, at the devil's hour, at the darkest hour of their life, do we find them succumbing to discouragement? Do we find them throwing in the towel? Do we find Silas saying, another fine mess you got us into, Paul? Do we find them bad-mouthing God? 
No, Acts chapter 16, verse 25 says to you and I, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and they sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Listen, it was no quiet praise time. It was so loud. The whole jail, the whole prison heard them. If you want to walk in God confidence, if you want to experience the power of God, you must, you must, you must move into prayer and praise. Prayer and praise <laughs> will usher you into the very presence of God. Prayer and praise will break the chains that seem to bind you. Prayer and praise will cause demons to flee and angels to heed their attention. <laughs> Prayer and praise will minimize your problems and magnify the almighty God who will not and who cannot fail you. Prayer and praise, hallelujah, places within your hand the power of a sovereign God. Prayer and praise. Jesus said, ask anything in my name and I will do it. Prayer and praise can do anything that God can do. I'm talking about prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. Yet today, today, what do we find? Today, we find it so different. We find that we have a church today that says, hey, we've got programs. We've got productions. We've got policies. We've got procedures. We've got protocol. We've got uh, charismatic personalities that adorn our stage. Uh, we don't need the Spirit of God. We can make it on our high-tech video, our screens, our sound systems, our lighting systems, our great razzle-dazzle facilities. We can coast upon what we've got. We don't need God to show up. Now, we might not say that verbally. We might not say that consciously. But let me tell you, the Pentecostal church is in trouble. The church today in America is in trouble. A captain was with his battleship coursing across the Atlantic Ocean. And the captain ordered the vessel to change course 10 degrees east. And when they did, they saw a light blazing in their opposite direction coming at them. The captain ordered this light, the ship that was coming at them. You change your course 10 degrees west. The light singled back. You change your course 10 degrees east. The captain singled back. I'm a Navy captain. Change your course, mister. The reply came back. I'm a seaman, second class. Change your course, sir. The captain is now furious. I'm a battleship and I'm not changing my course. The seaman singled back. I'm a lighthouse. It's your call, sir. <laughs> the point is clear. The point is clear. Much of the church today, countless Christians today, they better change their course or perish. We're going through the motions. We're singing the songs. We're even lifting our hands. But we don't know the power of God. We don't know the power of God. 
We don't know the power of God. We seek methods. We use methods. We rely on methods. Listen, God's Spirit seeks to anoint people, not machinery. He wants to use people, not programs and plans. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, saith the Lord. That word has not changed. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both here in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Did Jesus really mean it? He must have meant it. Does that mean I need to receive that power? Does that mean you need to receive that power? Yes! Yes, Jesus said, don't leave home without it. Don't you dare minister without it. For your God confidence, you're going to need it. To experience the power of God, to move in God confidence, write it down. We must move. We must move in the power of His Holy Spirit. We need a fresh new Pentecost. We cannot do God's work without God's power. Charles Spurgeon, that great pulpiteer, that great preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon cried out, if you ministers, if you Christians have not the Spirit of God, you had better not preach, uh, you had better not worship, and you people better stay at home, for if we do not have the Spirit of God, it would be better to shut up the churches, to nail up the doors, to put a black cross upon them and say God have mercy on us God have mercy on us dear saint dear believer dear follower of Christ last year's anointing last year's experience with God will not do today you need a fresh touch you need a fresh anointing. You need a fresh move of God in your life. You need the Holy Spirit of God to breathe upon you in a brand new way. How about it? How about it? How about it? There you have it. To live in a faith dimension beyond discouragement. If you want to experience joy, the abundant life, victory. If you want to counter the discouraging attacks of the evil one. To enjoy real God confidence. You must determine. Write it down. You must determine to live in the power of God's Word and the power of His Holy Spirit. The power of His Word and the power of His Spirit. The balance of the two will bring power in your life. It'll bring real God confidence. Father, in the name of Jesus today, we ask, oh God, <laughs> come Holy Spirit. We need Thee. Come Holy Spirit. We pray. Come in Thy might. Come in Thy power. Come in that own special way. Heads are bowed today in an attitude of worship, in an attitude of dependency upon the Lord. How many, how many, how many are here today? And you would say, Pastor, discouragement's been knocking at my door. Would you raise your hand this morning? Discouragement's been knocking at my door discouragement's been knocking at my door. Doesn't mean you've caved into it. Just means it's been knocking. I got my hand raised up. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be just transparent this morning. Discouragement's been knocking at my door, Pastor. 
Raise your hand. Precious Jesus. Precious Jesus. Yes, throughout, 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 throughout this assembly this morning. Throughout this assembly this morning. On the main floor and the balcony. Dozens and dozens of hands lifted up. The enemy, when he fires his darts of discouragement, it's men, women, boys and girls. So many of us, none of us are excluded. Everyone stand to your feet right now. Precious Jesus, precious Jesus, I'm going to ask you to make a faith step with me this morning. Do you want to be a punching bag? Or do you want God confidence? Do you want to be a punching bag? Or do you want to live and move in the victory that God has ordained for you, destined for you? If you were one of those with me that raised your hand, would you join me right now here at this altar? I'm not going to belabor this. Join me right now in the name of Jesus. Join me. Come, come. Precious Jesus, come. Come. Line up if you would. Let your toes touch the first step. Come and let your toes touch the first step. Press in. Press in. You'll understand. Come. Come. Discouragement's been knocking at your heart's door. 